Hello and welcome to another episode of Cripple Stump. Today we have another guest for you and Pippa will introduce herself. Over to you, Pippa. Hi everybody, I am Pippa or Philippa, either goes, not Pip, don't like that. Um, but I'm Pippa Willits. I am a freelance writer and editor and I have done a lot of disability rights campaigning and feminist campaigning and LGBTQ plus campaigning. Right. And uh, just to get us kicked off, right? I've done a bit of research on you on yourself. And uh, okay. I have a couple of questions, obviously. Uh, what kind of what if I was to ask you what kind of writer you are? What do you think that is? It's um, a slightly complicated answer because I'm a I'm freelance. I'm self-employed, and so I kind of do a bit of this and a bit of that. But generally, my writing can be divided into two areas. One is what I call commercial writing. So a company might want a blog on their website and they've not got the time to write it themselves so they hire me to write that for them and the other kind of writing I do is journalism and in my journalism I tend to write about social justice but generally at the moment that tends to be focused on disability rights and LGBTQI issues. Do you do any script work or script writing or anything like that? You know, that's one kind of writing that I've never done. I've never worked on scripts, um, either writing them or editing them. I also don't write fiction, which is unusual in a writer. I do sometimes proofread and edit fiction, but it's not something I write myself. Why do you think that is? I don't know. I, I like... I don't know, because I enjoy reading fiction. You know, I read plenty. Um, but I just prefer writing non-fiction and opinion and reporting, really. In terms of journalism, what uh, what journalists do you admire? Oh, that's a good question. There's a number. There is a writer in America called S.E. Smith. And they have been writing about social justice issues for longer than I have. And I've been doing it for quite a long time. Um, and I always look them up if I see them on Twitter that they've published something new. That's something I always look at. There's a writer called Sean Norris who has done some really good feminist writing, uh, reporting. Um, yeah, I, I would also... there's. A writer who perhaps politically I'm not aligned with, but whose writing I enjoy is Marina Hyde at The Guardian. She does some very good columns. Yeah. In terms of disability writing, do you think Frances Ryan is a good writer who writes yes, for The Guardian? I think she's great. Yeah. Yes, Frances is great. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, without question. Yeah. And any other good disability? Yeah, uh, uh, journalists that you love. 
There is a guy who does some stuff for the BBC called Alex something. Um, I can't remember. I'm so bad with names. Yeah. Often I will read something and think, that's great. I'll make a note of that name. And then the name falls out of my brain. Yeah. Until the next time I read something by them and think, they're really good. I should look them up yeah. again. You started doing a podcast called A Little, Little Birdie Tells Me. Right? I, I think I might have got the name wrong. Uh, but why did you stop doing that? It's um we it was a freelance writing podcast and it was great fun. I did it with somebody who um was another freelancer. And then a few things happened. We partly we'd done it for quite a long time and it was a lot of work, as you will know yourself. It was a lot of work. And then the other person I was doing it with went on maternity leave and we just never picked it back up again when she was back at work. And now that's somebody I am um, not in contact with anymore. All right. So would you, would you be interested in doing a podcast again? Or, Absolutely. Or that... I'm obs- yeah, I'm obsessed with podcasts. I listen to them constantly. Um, my phone is always playing a podcast to me. Yeah. Um, and... I have thoughts of doing a disability one. I, excuse me, I am looking into also start potentially starting a social enterprise. Um, and if I go ahead with that, I, I imagine, which will be mental health related. And if I go ahead with that, I imagine there being a podcast related to that as well. All right. Because the other day I was listening to you one of your last episodes with the, oh, right. the, the uh, Indian journalist. Oh, we do, uh, yes. Yeah, in 2014, I think it was. That uh, sounds about uh, and, right. And uh, I thought that was very interesting about the shy writer. I did too. And, you know, that conversation, yeah, that conversation changed my work a lot. Because what we were talking about was in in the freelancing world, there are a lot of freelance writers based in India and they tend to have quite a bad reputation. People think you pay them very little, they don't do very good work. Whereas Muridu came out of India and said, I'm as good as someone in America, so you can pay me as well as you pay someone in America. Yeah. And what she was talking about in that episode was turning something that some people would see as a barrier, turning it into an opportunity. Um, And so for her, that looked like saying to somebody at the New York Times, well, you don't have a reporter in India, but I'm here. So I'm the best person to write this for you. And we talked about it because I, up until that point, I think it was 2012 when I started freelancing. And I had been very wary of being openly, being open about being disabled. I thought that people would not hire me. Um, I thought they would say, oh, she won't be reliable or she won't be good enough if they knew I was disabled. But that conversation with Mridu, who now goes by Natasha, made me rethink. And I started being a lot more open about the fact that I was a disabled writer. 
And what happened was exactly what had happened with her, which was that rather than losing work, I actually got people approaching me specifically because I was disabled and saying, we manufacture this particular disability product. Will you write for us about it? And so, yeah, that that episode, that conversation with her um, shifted the path of my freelancing. And it means that being a disabled writer is much more central to my work now, which I much prefer as opposed to kind of trying to hide it, which yeah. never felt right. Well, I'm glad I listened to, out of all the episodes, I'm glad I listened to that one then in that case. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, one of the things I was thinking was like, you know, it's interesting you say that because like I'm a disabled person, right? And, but I don't want to just talk about disability all the time. Because I get fucking bored to the back teeth of it. You know, there's more yeah. to me than my disability and my ethnicity, you know? You know what I mean? Absolutely. So I, yeah, I just get a bit sick of it, really. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a very good point. And I think if I was only writing about disability, I would feel exactly the same. Yeah. Um, I think the fact that it's kind of one of three or four topics I write about a lot means that it feels more balanced. It feels more like, you know, I'm not just being a disabled person. I'm, um, I have more strings to my bow um, yeah. than that. But equally, I think because my writing about disability is often in journalism, it feels like, whereas going back 10 or 15 years, my way of, changing the world was going to demos and going to protests and shouting. These days, I feel like writing about these things is more the way I'm currently trying to change the world. Yeah. And do you think it's changing? Oh, I worry. Well, I worry that things are getting worse for disabled people in this country. I think... Yeah. Um, austerity has been devastating for disabled people. And then when you add COVID onto that, it is just awful. There is so much to worry about. Equally, I think other things are... I think some people's attitudes are improving, but I think the structural stuff is possibly getting worse. I think... I hate to be boring, but I, I would agree with that. Yeah. Really, but the only thing I would add to that is the authoritarian government that we have. Yeah. As well. Yeah. This lot make David Cameron's lot look like pussycats. <laughs> yeah, they're frightening, frightening people. Yeah. Uh, but I suppose you could say he paved the way for them, I suppose. Yes, I would say so. And certainly what he did with Nick Clegg, with the Lib Dems in coalition and the stock, because obviously benefits were starting to get more restricted by the Labour government, by the end of the Labour government. Yeah. But then it was the coalition, wasn't it, that really made the most devastating yeah. cuts. 
Uh, yeah. Hey, you provided me with a super link there. Yeah. Uh, because <laughs> you're, you're based in Sheffield, if I'm correct, right? Yeah. So could we I talk am. about Nick Clegg and Sheffield <laughs> and uh, a bit a bit around that, really? Yeah, what a disappointment he turned out to be. He was yeah. um, like the hope of the country, wasn't he? And certainly of the city. Um, he campaigned a lot in the... Because we have two universities in Sheffield. He campaigned a lot around there because part of his constituency is a very studenty area. Yeah. And obviously made all the promises about abolishing tuition fees. Got a lot of jokes. Uh, not jokes. That's a... We <laughs> 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 got a lot of votes that way yeah. um and then i remember there was such like celebration when when he was doing really well and then i think it was 12 months later 12 months after the election where the coalition was formed the Lib Dems held their conference in Sheffield and there was such a massive demonstration that the City Hall had to be basically boarded off mm. to keep us, I was at that demonstration, from Lib Dem delegates. And that people were furious, including me. And that shift from celebration to hate took a year, if not less, and and he's kind of failed upwards, right? He's now yeah, he's now communications yeah, director for Facebook, right? Yes, yeah. I some people I don't know if it's a white man thing. Yeah, just do what you like and you carry on succeeding. Yeah, it's just it's just crazy. And him and uh, George Osborne. He also failed upwards. Yep. Yeah, I believe he's not at the Evening Standard anymore, but he got some other quite high profile. Hasn't he got like 10 jobs or something? <laughs> probably. Yeah. Probably. And uh, and they uh, probably and all pay rather well. And the other thing was that Nick Clegg lost to a disabled person. He did. Do you know what? Um, who at, He also turned out to be a nightmare in, in his own yeah. way. But, um, he was called Jared O'Mara, I yeah, think. Yeah. And nobody expected him to win. And so he was the Labour candidate in Nick Clegg's very safe seat. Yeah. And he it, it was so unexpected that he won that they had to delay announcing the result so that somebody could go to a 24-hour Tesco and buy him a suit so that really? at least when the results were announced, Jared O'Mara would be wearing a suit. So somebody went, found a Tesco, bought him a suit, got him dressed, and then the results were announced. And, yeah, it was promising a disabled guy in Parliament who, um, you know, he was young, he could have been really promising, he was on the uh, Equalities Committee, I think, and then things came out about sexual harassment and he wasn't turning up a lot. And, yeah, he's he's long gone now. It reminds me of, this is completely kind of unrelated, 
but I just thought I'd share it anyway. When you were saying that, it reminds me of uh, an American politician called Matthew Weiner, who okay, who were, was really big and he was a real governor in a state of one of American states. I can't remember which one, but he he fell from grace after he was started sending like pictures of his wiener to people. And like, oh, no. like, like, what I'm trying to say is, it's weird how these things happen, and then they get thrust into some sort of limelight, and then yeah. it just kind of it decimates, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. And there was stuff from someone uncovered, so like some forum discussion from years ago, where I think he'd been. This is back to Amara. I think he'd been homophobic, maybe racist, and. Yeah, I think they, I don't know whether Labour thought, well, it's a seat we're not going to win, so we don't need to put too much into vetting him. Yeah. Or or if their vetting went wrong, I don't know. But yeah, it was, again, disappointing. He could have been promising. He could have been um, a, a breath of fresh air. And it was it was just a disaster, really. Like, like it seems that like most politicians really, I mean, look at <laughs> look at Obama for for a brief period that everybody thought he would he could walk on water. <laughs> I do still like him though. He's smooth. Yeah, he's got that going for him. He's smooth. Yeah, he's smoother than Nick Clegg. Anyway, put it that way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. Going back to you and your your writing, and uh, could you tell me a bit about Global Comment? Yes, Global Comment is a website that has been around for nearly twenty years, and it showcases the writing of journalists from anywhere in the world. Um, we have a regular writer from Venezuela, a guy in Serbia. Um, people from all over who write about something interesting that's of interest to a global audience, but it doesn't have to be a global story. It can be about something that happened in your neighbourhood or um, or a tradition or a custom from your country or anything, really. Um, or oh, and Also, there are reviews of films and um, books and TV and music and that kind of thing. Although we've not had a music review for ages. Anyway, so I, I <clears throat> wrote that for them a few times as a freelancer, and then they offered me a weekly column, which I took up. And so for a good few years, I wrote a weekly opinion piece for them about anything, anything. It was mostly UK politics or, um, or more specific to disability, LGBT, feminism. You're getting the idea. And then a couple of years ago, after I'd done the column for a few years, the previous editor stepped down and I was appointed as the new editor, um, editor-in-chief, if I'm being formal. So I write for the site less now, um, but I commission and edit and um, work with writers from around the world. Um, and, yeah, a post goes up every weekday. And it's a great site. It's not huge. It's um, 
but it's really well established and the writing is really great. And uh, what, what, how, what kind of level do you have to be at to write for that? To be honest, you need to be able to be engaging or tell a good story. Um, some of the writers, oh, their English isn't perfect. It might be their second language or their third or fourth language. Um, but there are, to a degree, that can be fixed by me editing. So you don't have to have perfect English. You don't have to be perfect with your spelling or punctuation. Um, a certain standard makes it easier, but really it's about being, telling a compelling story that's more important than your technical skills. Would, would, would you ever be interested in putting audio clips on there? We've technically we have a podcast, but it hasn't we haven't had an episode for ages. That's not my remit actually. That's the one bit of the site that I don't particularly work on. Audio clips possibly. I do something called the podcast showcase, which I should get you on once you've got um oh you have more than five episodes, so yeah. Where I feature a different podcast and just ask a set of eight questions okay. um, for a bit of promo for them and a bit of interesting content for us because, as you'll know, podcasts are huge at the moment. Everybody wants more and more and more of them. So if I can help people find them through that, then, you know, I'm more than happy to. And, and um, yeah, there have been some really interesting ones. Yeah, yeah. Uh... Can you remember the first article you ever wrote? Way back, I had a blog, a personal blog, in the days when you had to explain to people what a blog was. Nobody knew. Yeah. And all I remember, so, but it, was, it wasn't articles so much as just a bit of a diary, I think. Yeah. So it was just my thoughts and opinions on things. Um, and then I was approached to join a website called The F Word, which is a UK feminist website. Yeah. So I started kind of getting a bit better at it then because it had a bigger audience. But I can't remember what the first one was, no. All right. Yeah, I, I like to ask questions that, you know, but you probably haven't probably been asked before, or you know, yeah. like questions that people can't just read the answers on on your blog because because yeah. I was looking yeah. at your blog and there's an interview where somebody's asking you the classic questions that I was like, fucking, I don't want to do that because <laughs> because they can just go to the website and and read yeah. those answers, yeah. you know. So, oh, definitely. So what was the point of us having the conversation? So in <laughs> terms of activism, right, how can we change the world as as two people sat here? How, through through uh, both of our, our work, how can we change the world, do you think? I think... I think there are many different ways to do it. And I think just to 
people having a conversation can make the start in changing the world like we're doing now. But I also think that because if you get a hundred disability activists together, they would all have a slightly different priority or a slightly different focus. And they would all have a slightly different way of working. And I used to, well, you know, when I was young and a bit over enthusiastic, I used to think my way is the way and my priority is the most important one. But now I think that actually when you've got a hundred people doing it slightly differently, that just means we're covering all bases because Mm. if my priority, like today I was writing an article um, for a, local magazine I write for called Now Then because a week or two ago there was the do you know about assessment and treatment units? Yeah. Yeah. There are places where learning disabled and autistic people who are struggling with their mental health might be sent and they're meant to be a short term thing but often people are in there for months or years and become institutionalised And so there have been campaigns against assessment and treatment units for several years. And a couple of weeks ago, the one in Sheffield got a report that um, found it inadequate in every area. And they've been banned from taking new um, patients in. And so yesterday I attended a group of adults with learning disabilities to talk about how they felt about this place, which is called Furs Hill Rise. Yeah, I was just going to ask you the name so we can name them and shame them, you know? Absolutely. It's called Furs Hill Rise. And this group of people were very upset and very angry, obviously, because while they weren't in there, they might have been, or, yeah. you know, people they knew might have been. And so today I was writing up an article about Furs Hill Rise. And when it's published, I'll send you the link. Um, And there have been a few articles in the press about it, but nobody else, nobody at the BBC, nobody at the Sheffield Star, nobody anywhere thought, let's ask people with learning disabilities what they think about this. Whereas for me, changing the world is saying, who does this affect the most? And that's yeah. these people. Let's see, their voices are the most important in this conversation. So I was, I wrote this article covering the facts, covering all the details, but also really featuring these people who should have had the most important voices, but actually hadn't been heard. Um, and so for me today, that was my way of changing the world. Yeah. And for somebody else, it's, well, you know, for me 10 years ago, it was yelling at Nick Clegg. Um, yeah. And I think we have to go with what feels the most important to us at any given moment. And we have to go with what feels the most effective and suitable way at any given moment. And that will change. But as long as there's a lot of us, and there are a lot of us, then I think we're covering all the bases we need to. Yeah. 
because uh, not to be too grand about it, but I think partly for me doing this is partly changing the world. Because I, oh, I agree absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I want to be intensely local and internationally global at the same time. So yeah. you know, so so that's why why I want to do something like this. Because I, I feel like we're speaking from the bunker, and yeah. and the idea and the idea of people in other countries thinking, oh, it's okay for disabled people in the UK. I want them to know it's fucking not okay. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I mean, the people at First Will Rise apparently, you know, they'd requested food and drink and hadn't been given it. They were being restrained. Um, they were using isolation. These are things that we should not be seeing in the modern world, especially when somebody's in a mental health crisis. Um, and yeah, this is happening in the happy UK where things are supposed to be advanced and futuristic and they're just not. And especially the context of the Winterbourne view and all that kind of, those kind of scandals that have already happened, you know? It's not like something like this hasn't already happened. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But when I was talking to the people in this group yesterday, repeatedly they were bringing up Winterbourne View and a place called Walton Hall. Oh, yeah. Um, which was a couple of years ago. And, and none of them, I don't think, were surprised that this had happened again. I think we all were horrified that it had happened again, but but I, I don't think people are really surprised when they understand the context we're living in. And Edward Grenfell Tower and all that kind of thing as well. Yeah, yeah, horrifying, yeah. And just the other day it came out that the, there was no real disability plan in terms of <laughs> Grenfell Tower, you know? Yeah. Just put them in yeah. this burning building and they'll be fine. Yeah. Yeah, and like as if what happened there wasn't bad enough already. Yeah, um, yeah just horrifying. And uh, I don't know if you're aware, but the government have announced their, their big disability strategy today. Uh, yes, do you know, I've only seen headlines about it. I've been aware that it's there, but I because I've been writing all day, I haven't read the detail. Oh, what, yeah. have, you, have you found out more than I have? No, I've just read a few, few of the headlines. But all right. I can say is, like, it, it, it just seems complete bollocks, really. <laughs> Why does that not surprise me? And, like, how can anybody trust the government the way they've treated disabled people over the last 20 years and all of a sudden yeah. all we're doing a disability strategy where you haven't spoken to any disabled people? <laughs> about, the about the strategy and this is a government that a few months ago said oh good news we're not racist as a yeah. country yeah. and you know and you think oh come on and so of course I wasn't I don't think any of us would have had high hopes from what this strategy was going to announce but yeah I, and, when I can bear it I'll have a look at the detail and the and they did a consultation that I was one of the people that filled it in just because I wanted to know what was there. 
But apparently only 14,000 people filled it in. And there's somewhere around 14 million disabled people. Wow. In this country. Yeah. Yeah. You know? So that just tells you something, doesn't it? It does. It does. And do it, asking you another question now. Where did you look for, for, for French coming? When I was a kid, my parents were both German teachers. Okay. Um, and when I was very little, my dad used to speak to me kind of half in English, half in German. And my theory is that that just switched on the language bit of my brain, the language learning bit of my brain. But for me, rather than German, which I forgot quite quickly once he stopped doing that, um, it was French. I just really enjoyed it. I was always going to do music as a career. I played the flute and I played the piano, but I played the flute a lot better and I was doing really well and then um, became unwell and it just um, became clear that I wouldn't be well enough to be a professional flautist and... I, it was at the time I, I was doing my A-levels and I had to make a really quick decision. If I'm not going to do music at university, what on earth am I going to do? And I was also doing a French A-level and I was really enjoying that. And I quite liked the idea, if you do a French degree, you tend to do two years and then a year in France and then your final year. So I quite liked the idea of a year abroad. And so I applied to universities to do French without much thought because I was in a panic and I'm not doing music. I don't know what to do. Um, and yeah, so I came, that's when I came to Sheffield was to do my degree. And then I lived in the South of France for a year, which was amazing. Um, and then came back here to finish my degree. And I've been here ever since. Uh, so is the South of France all it's cracked up to be then? It is. It's gorgeous. It's sunny. Yeah. It's um. It's the only issue where and because it was the late nineties when I was there. Yeah. And I know from just seeing the news periodically that this is still an issue. Yeah. Is their um far right party the their national front um is a lot more successful than any of the far right parties we've had here, um. And the racists in France mostly object to the North African people. So people come from Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia. Um, and because you have Africa and then the south of France is above Africa, there's quite high populations of North Africans in the south of France, which I loved. Um, my best friend there was Moroccan. I adore her still. Um, but it meant that the racists um, tried to exploit that for points. And so the prevalence of the far-right politics there worried me. Um, but the south of France itself, if you take away the racists and the bigots, um, is stunning, yeah. And um, what's life in... 
I don't know if you can remember that, but what's the life for disabled people in France? I, well, I was disabled then, but I didn't realise, which sounds weird, but at that stage I had quite severe mental health problems and I didn't have the awareness that that was a disability issue. I thought it was a me issue. Um, And... I was aware of disability. I'd always known disabled people, but I wouldn't say I was politically aware of disability so much. And so I wasn't looking out for how France was doing it at the time. From what I remember looking back now, there wasn't massive visibility of disabled people. Um, But I'm slightly embarrassed to say I don't know beyond that because... um, I just wasn't aware enough of the issues at the time. It's okay. You don't have to be embarrassed. I was just asking. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a good question. Um, because, yeah, culturally, there are there was a bit of a culture shock, which you don't think just moving one country along. <laughs> but, but there was. There was a lot more open. Like, by then, in this country you didn't really see ads with topless women anymore. Yeah. You know, advertising a car. You wouldn't have a woman in a bikini advertising a car. Yeah. Whereas yeah. in France, that was still very much the thing. Okay. And yeah, I wonder, I suspect they were a few years behind us. I think they've caught up now, at least on feminism, which is what I was politically aware of at the time. They were certainly behind on LGBT stuff because I had come out by the time I went to France and that was weird. There was a lot less visibility of that. So it, it would fit that there would be a lot less disability, uh, visibility of disabled people as well in that context. If you don't mind me asking, could you tell me about, about your coming out experience at that time? Yeah, sure. Um, I... Grew up Catholic, which oh, right, okay. <laughs> as a teenager, <laughs> no. as a teenager, when I was becoming aware that I fancied girls, not boys, yeah. I couldn't cope with that at all. I it would pop into my head, and I would push it away. I just couldn't cope. And then there was something about leaving home, going to a new place, a new start. I didn't know anybody where I started to think, if I'm going to explore what this means, this is the time to do it. Yeah. And I was meeting new friends who were gay or bisexual, and I would see them living happily, you know, with a girlfriend or with a boyfriend or whatever, and I would start to think, maybe, maybe it is okay. Maybe, you know, maybe it's not the end of the world if I am gay. And then, so I started to kind of ease out of the closet. And then I thought it was like putting my toe in the pool and going, this is fine. And then I just leapt in. (laughs) And I feel like all I did for two years was be gay. Like technically I was doing classes. Technically I was doing university but really what I was doing predominantly was everything I did was gay 
Um, I went to gay clubs. I went to gay meetings. I went to gay groups. And it was exactly what I needed after the kind of negativity around that that had been in my um, the culture I grew up in. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Did, it, did it feel like being released out of prison? Then or something yeah. like that? Yeah, yeah, something like that. Um, but it felt like being released out of prison when, when you're in prison, you think the outside world is terrifying and then you're released and go, do you know, it's not terrifying, actually. It's fine. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it must have had, you must have had a lot of anxiety about it at the time, though. Oh, massive, massive. And I think it's part of where my mental health problems at the time came from. Yeah. Um, was just not just denying this big part of myself, but hating it and being really scared of it. What advice would you would the now you give to the then you, do you think? I would say you are a lesbian, and although that feels like your biggest fear, it's yeah. actually fine. Okay. Yeah. Do you think that would have saved you a lot of trouble? Yeah. Because I used to read teenage girls' magazines, um, and I used to read the problem pages, and occasionally somebody would write in and say, I think I fancy girls, not boys. And the problem page would always say, don't worry, it doesn't mean you're gay, it's just a phase. <laughs> and okay. so I think if, if just one person has had said, do you know, you might actually be gay and that's fine. Yeah. I think it could have made a really big difference. And it sounds like a small thing, but for a kid in a town with a very kind of strict religious thing, and I very much believed in it, um, I was very Catholic at the time. Um, you know, it sounds like a small thing, but that could have been quite transformative to hear. Yeah. Uh, um, what, uh, you know, in terms of, uh, did you get all right with the language? Yeah, I got really good at French. Sadly, I've forgotten a lot of it now because this was 20-something years ago. But yeah, I'm... Um, I was pretty good by the time I got there. And then because I had a lot of French friends and um, spoke it, because I saw some other British and Irish students kind of congregated together. And so we're mostly talking in English still, whereas nearly all my friends are French. So I was talking in French the whole time. So I got, by the end of my year there, I got to the point where people thought I was French, which was pretty impressive. Um, but then, you know, I haven't used it much since graduating. So, um, yeah. because I, oh yeah, because I <clears throat> came back to Sheffield after the year there and then had a full on breakdown. So it took me a year longer to graduate. And then I was off sick. I was on benefits for a good few years, mainly mental health related. And it was only... Um, about 15 years ago that physical disability came into the mix um, to join that. So, 
it was a complicated time. And as I said, I didn't recognize depression and PTSD as a disability issue. And it took, I had a lot of self-blame about that. I thought I was living wrong. I didn't know what I was doing wrong. I didn't realize that there was a whole context to it and um, the world is quite cruel to people. And of course, some people struggle with that. And then I became physically disabled and started to understand all of my experiences in a more disability rights context. What do you think triggered off your mental health problems? I think there's never one thing, is there? I think I do think it was partly being gay and hating myself for it for a long time. Yeah. Um, and there was some kind of traumatic things and just, I think it's just a mixture of... What, was it partly coming back to this country? <laughs> possibly, possibly. I did love France. I did love it there. Mm. Um, yeah, probably didn't help going back <laughs> to the great guys. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Um... Yeah, I just wondered because it's always good to talk about mental health because it could help other people, you know? Oh, definitely, definitely. A lot of people are very afraid to talk about it. Yeah, and it's very hard to find somebody that's willing to talk about it. That's what yeah. I'm asking, really. It's like, yeah. So did you say you had PTSD? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Um, yeah, I had a, a traumatic experience um that was just really horrible and my brain couldn't process it and so just turned into a big terrified blob so i spent a long time just afraid of everything um yeah and uh, have you had have you had therapy about that and how Yes, I have, and it did. It took a long time for it to help. I think um, I had a lot of, call it like person-centred counselling, which is very much talking things through, um, exploring your feelings and your emotions and your experiences and that kind of thing. And then I got to a point where I thought, I feel like I've explored everything and I'm still not, right i feel like i understand myself now yeah but i'm still scared of everything and so i was referred for a kind of therapy called emdr which is eye movement desensitization yeah eye movement desensitization and reprocessing and it's a weird therapy i'm not going to lie you think about traumatic things that have happened to you while watching a light move from left to right okay or while having someone tap your knees alternately left and right really and i heard about this and i thought what like i why is the nhs funding that it sounds like nonsense yeah yeah. but it was offered to me so i looked into it and it turns out there's a load of evidence for it um 
so I thought, well, I don't know what else to do, so I'll give it a go. And it turned out, I'm not saying everything is 100% fine now. Yeah. But it turned out to be immensely helpful um, in just making me less of a big ball of trauma. Yeah, I'm not constantly terrified of everything anymore. Um, And it's not that, you know, if something's on the news, I might get upset and it might trigger bad memories and that kind of thing. Um, It doesn't turn you into a perfect zombie, but it just took the edge off, you know? Yeah, yeah. So I don't, I don't know how it works. I don't know why it works. But it, for me and for a lot of people, it's really effective. And what was it called again? Sorry. EMDR. EMDR. Okay. Yeah. And I was listening to one of your radio interviews the other day that you oh, did yeah. for Sheffield. Oh, yeah. BBC yeah. Radio Sheffield the other day, and yeah. You said something very interesting there. Uh, one of the things was that, you know, you quite like working from from home and this, that, and the other, and you kind of think that because a certain level of disabled people have been calling for that for years, which is true, but one of the things I wanted to bring up with you and put out into the world was that the thing I'm scared about is that people that... Uh, design policies and stuff think of home doing everything in the home as the solution in terms of them being meaning that you won't need to make everywhere accessible and stuff like that you know what I mean I do that's a really valid point I think for me it works really well yeah it's um... (coughs) excuse me if I had to be in an office at nine o'clock every morning, I think I wouldn't last long at work. Yeah. As it is. And especially when I was living with a lot more fear, I was afraid to be out sometimes. So it just wouldn't have been realistic. Yeah. Whereas if I can set up at home where I'm comfortable, where I'm happy, um, it works for me. But that's not to say it's the solution for everybody by yeah. any means. A lot of people seem to be interested in what's oh a hybrid, like a hybrid model yeah. where they might do two days a week in the office and three yeah. at home or something like that. I think I've known a lot of disabled people, a lot, who have had to leave a job because they couldn't get the accommodation of, of working at home a couple of days a week. Yeah. And they were frankly disgusted to see how quickly everybody adapted last year. To yeah. okay, everybody's working from home as of today, and it was just all fixed. And that is unforgivable that the same companies that a month earlier said, No, we can't accommodate you working from home, yeah. um, were suddenly doing it. But you're absolutely right. There should not be, that should not mean that a company that has an inaccessible office can now say, Oh, it doesn't matter that we're inaccessible because you can just work from home instead. You're absolutely right. There's no, it shouldn't lead to losing rights in other areas. Yeah. Yeah, because when you were saying that, I was like, I understand what you say. I, don't, I agree with that. But I don't want it to be at the expense of something else. I still want the option and, and the 
the the the possibility of being yeah. able to go and commute if I want to, you know? Of course, like I'm a massive introvert, <clears throat> so I'm quite happy on my own. But a lot of people cannot cope without being in the midst of other people. Yeah. And a lot of people, like they've managed to work from home, but they hate it and they wish they're colleague was next to them rather than on zoom and all and i completely understand that yeah. we've all got our styles of working and our styles of living yeah. and it shouldn't be that accommodating me means not accommodating you or you know yeah. joe blogs on the street yeah without question and the the other major aspect of it is that it, it would be another way of making disabled people third class citizens you know, where... Yep. And, and keeping us hidden away as well. You know, like in the old days where yeah. a disabled kid would be sent to a, an institution from the minute they were born and wouldn't ever be seen again. Yeah. And we must not go close to that. We mustn't feel like we have to be shut in. No. Yeah, I just felt like we should vocalise that and, uh, you know... Absolutely, out... yeah, yeah put it out there and clarify it really because I just think it it's important because especially when everybody wants to do everything on the cheap, you know? Yeah, yeah. You know, and, Zoom, yeah. and then uh, on a certain level, doing the stuff from home is cheaper for companies and things like that. Yeah, it definitely can be. Um, and because I'm self-employed, obviously... You know, apart from the odd day where I would take my laptop to a cafe or something and work there for a change of scene, um, then the work I do for other companies is all, I'm still self-employed when I do it. I'm still a freelancer. Yeah. But if I worked, you know, if I was an employee, I might look at it quite differently. And as you say, I would think, are they saying, yes, work from home for your benefit? Or are they saying, yes, work from home for our benefit? And it's a different yeah. story. Do you ever write for any French magazines? I never have. And these days, I wouldn't have the confidence that my French was good enough. Okay. Perhaps, uh, you know, way back I would have, but but no, not, not these days. And do you know of any, like, international, like writing movements that you think everybody should be aware of or any international magazines that you want to give a shout out to? Obviously check out globalcomment.com um, I think the joy and problem with the internet is that it's all there isn't it? Which is brilliant and awful because we can never see it all um, and some of it's terrible what I really like about my journalism part of my job at the moment is that it's half global comment, which is a very international look at the world. And it's half now then magazine, which is purely a Sheffield look at the world. And they seem like the opposite, very local and very worldwide. And I love that contrast. And because I love Sheffield, it's a great city. Um, I have been here since 1995 and I'm still not bored of it. Um, there's always new things, there's always new stuff going on. And so being 
I've only been with now then since February. And I'm again seeing it in a slightly new way as a local journalist, as opposed to a national one, which I've been doing on and off for years, and an international one with global comments. So I think the key to finding the good stuff is just keep looking and it's there. And when you find something you like, follow the writer or, you know, read more from them and share it with your friends and see what your friends recommend. Because there's so much of it that it's it's impossible to, to put your finger on, really, isn't it? Yeah. What do you like about Sheffield so much? It's difficult to define. It's got a really good vibe, and I know that's a bit meaningless, but it just has a good feel about it for me. We are right... Well, I was going to say we're right on the edge of the Peak District, but some of the Peak District is within the city boundaries. I read yesterday, I think I shared this on Facebook, that 61% of the city is green spaces, which I very much appreciate. And so I like... I grew up in a town, I grew up in Wigan, which is your side of the Pennines. Um, and I, having grown up in a town, I love living in a city. I feel like I've got everything I need. Things are happening. Comedians come and play here. You know, bands come and play here. There's good campaigning going on. But also a quick drive or a quick bus journey and I'm in the countryside so it feels like the best of both worlds really All right. and uh, is there anything you'd like to say to me or to the world finally I think just keep doing your thing be that you or be that the listener whether that's your podcast whether that's writing a letter to your MP whether it's talking on Facebook openly about your life whether it's applying for that job that you're not sure if you can get, but you really want, I think keep like the world is exhausting, but it can also be brilliant. And it's when we come together and support each other that we see the best of the world. And so whatever your heart is telling you to do, unless it's like murder children, then do it because there's a place in the world for it, I think. I think that's a good place to end. And it just left for me to say a big thank you to you, really, for doing thank this. Thank you for asking me. Thank I was you. really pleased you asked. Thank you very much. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>